Well, we hope now you're in the Word to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this morning we continue our series in prayer called Let Us Pray. And the title of my message this morning is A Call to Pray. We're going to do something different right now. If you have an opportunity to write down on a piece of paper, it could be a scrap piece of paper or something in your notes, maybe even in your Bible if you so choose to defile the Word of God in such a way. <laughs> I want you to write down the names of three people. Let me tell you about these three people. Three people that you care about deeply, that you would say that you love, and who do not know Jesus Christ. And throughout the course of our time together this morning, I want to ask you a question for you to consider during our time in the Word together this morning. How far are you willing to go to reach those three people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I'm going to challenge you this morning to really, truly identify if you truly care about those three people enough to go as far as you need to go to see the gospel of Jesus Christ brought to them. The saving work, that's God's job. That's His work. Our job, getting the gospel to those people. Hopefully you have three people written on a piece of paper that you care about deeply who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I did this very exercise as I read through this passage of Scripture in my personal devotional life almost 25 years ago. And those three people that I wrote were my mom, my dad, and my sister. In 2014, my mom came to the Lord. Yesterday, my sister was here for the women's retreat. And I'm praying for my dad, who could be saved, but just wouldn't tell me, so he kept me on the edge of my seat my entire life. He would. My dad would be that kind of guy. He'd get saved, wouldn't tell me, and wanted to see if I was going to be sincere enough to keep pursuing him with the gospel. That's my dad. Love him. But as we begin here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want to read this text with you, and then let's go through it very simply this morning. There's much that we could bring out from these words, but I want to simply focus in on the urgency and the importance of prayer that Paul here is giving us. He says, first of all then, I urge you, verse 1 of chapter 2, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I bring you to this portion of scripture this morning 
Because we find here the Apostle Paul instructing a young man named Timothy on how to bring about a healthy church culture. And Paul is stressing here that first of all, that church culture must be saturated with prayer. Paul wants this church that Timothy is overseeing, it's a church in the city of Ephesus, he wants this church to be a praying church. Now that isn't unique just to the church there in Ephesus. I believe God wants every church to be a praying church. And I also want you to notice the word all there, how often it is used over and over and over again. And as we begin to work through this passage, we are going to find that the prayer that Paul is asking us to pray is targeted and specific. Targeted and specific. All of the prayer that we have discussed up until this point really revolves around the believer in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to talk about getting outside of ourselves. Today we're going to talk about getting outside of the four walls of this church. Today we are going to be talking about one of those, that I think, the type of prayer that is truly the battlefield. It is a place where we do battle. Not with people, but with the ruler of this world. Principalities and powers, etc. It is this prayer that we are talking about that brings us to our knees and asks God to work in the hearts and the minds of the unbelievers that we love and care about. Where we ask for the salvation of those in whom we love. Where we start praying that God would begin to work in their life in a dynamic way. It's this type of prayer that we are going to be talking about this morning. And specifically, we are going to focus and target it upon the three people that you wrote down at the beginning of this service. Notice that Paul here begins with Timothy in a very specific way. After greeting, after warning in verse 1, he says, first of all, bringing this to a place of importance in the mind and the heart of Timothy. As one wrote, the local church does not pray because it is expected thing to do so. It prays because prayer is, a vital, is vital to the life of the local church. I believe that the way God works in an, in an individual is through prayer and the Word of God. That's why so often you will hear us encourage you week in and week out. How is your devotional life? Each and every day that devotional life should consist of a time of prayer with God. Each and every day that time of devotion should be spent in a time of the, reading the Word of God for yourself and allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to your heart. That's the dynamic of the relationship we have with God and through Jesus Christ. But Paul is urging us, first of all, place of importance, take this one to heart. That's what he's saying here. I want you to be a praying church. The Word of God miraculously works in the hearts of the people by the Holy Spirit and through the prayers of the people. As 1 Thessalonians, as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I'll read it for you. 
And we also thank God consistently for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, and not as the word of men, but as it was really the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Or in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, talking about that same work of the word of God in the people's lives. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen. From the very beginning of the church's conception, we find that prayer was a dynamic component of the church. Today, prayer has become the last resort all too often. Prayer should always be the first choice in any matter, not the last resort at any time. Pray first, and then let God do what only God can do. That's where we're moving to. We want to become intentional about prayer. Prayer is one of those things that you have to be intentional about. It's not just going to do it itself. We have to make time for it. We have to be urgent about it. We have to understand what it is all about, and that's what we're trying to do in this series. We're trying to talk about prayer and what it means to the health of the believer and into the body of Christ. Prayer is one of those privileges, like Martin Luther said, prayer should be as natural to the believer as breathing. And yet there's too many Christians holding their breath. We're just not praying. You know why? Because at times we will find resistance. At times we will be discouraged. At times we bring our pragmatic thinking into it. I I prayed, I did that, and it didn't work. Well, then keep praying. Persistently. Don't stop. Keep praying. If God says yes, or if he says no, you have your answers And therefore, you submit yourself to the sovereignty of God, to the will of God. If he says, wait, then keep praying. If no clear-cut answer is given, then keep praying. But that's when it becomes tough, doesn't it? Or we say, well, I've I've prayed that prayer already. It's on God's desk. He's going to get to it eventually. I've lifted that one up. I know I've got credit for it up there in heaven. I turned in my homework. I'm done. Keep praying. Keep earnestly praying with persistence. From the very beginning, if you read through the book of Acts, you will discover that time and time again they kept praying with urgency. First of all, it was a matter of importance to them in the early church. As one pastor wrote, he said, the church that prays will have power and will make a lasting impact for Christ. Note how the believers in Acts turned to prayer and overcame their enemies. Paul exhorts us here to pray. It's important. First and foremost, the importance of prayer. It's not something that can just be given lip service. It must be something that is implemented in the church. We can talk about it all we want, but we got to do it. The reason God blessed this women's retreat is because of the women that were urgently praying before and after it. For months, women were praying over it. Praying over the list of each and every person that was going to attend, asking God to do a work within their life. The same with Operation Christmas Child. 
The one thing I noticed as we were watching the presentation is how often prayer is offered to God to be to use these simple shoeboxes in such a profound manner. It's prayer. That's it. It's prayer. What the church needs in America it actually is not another Bible study. It's a prayer meeting. And I'm all for Bible studies. I'm all for it. We can talk theology all you want. I'm in. But I've been encouraged too often by men that I very much respect and have watched their ministries. They say for every hour of study, an hour of prayer should be offered, if not two. But he goes on to tell us that there's a specific prayer that he wants us to offer. He says here in verse 1, he noticed that it has a four-dimensional existence. Three of these dimensions we have already seen earlier in our study on prayer. I urge that supplications, prayer that are made on behalf of ourselves, things that we are in need of, prayers, and in this word it's a very general word, I won't say generic, but it's a very general word, but it incorporates and encompasses a worship of God, an adoration of God. And the fourth is that of thanksgiving. I purposely skipped the third for a moment. And that thanksgiving we really talked about last week. As Paul encouraged us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. It is this third one that Paul is introducing us to this morning. Used here in the New Testament, it appears to be a position of prayer that would be defined by praying for those who do not know Christ. He says here, and he makes it abundantly clear, that we should pray in this manner, in all four ways, in conjunction with one another, for all people. The first all that is used there. We should pray in this manner for all people. When we were at Heritage Fest two weeks ago, Somebody simply wrote on a whiteboard in our booth, can we pray for you? I was surprised at how many people came up and wanted prayer. We didn't know where they were at with God. That was part of the aspect of speaking with them and praying for them. But we knew where we were at with God. And we were asking God to show himself strong to this person. Because their request of prayer showed me a desperation that they had already come to. And praying for all people in this way, he then goes on to broaden it, or specify it even further, for kings and all who are in high positions. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But as one wrote, rather than understanding the four terms as descriptive of a semantic liturgy on prayer... The thought is of one completeness, every dimension and action of prayer being focused on the need at hand. Meaning, our prayer life should contain these four components to be a complete and healthy prayer life. And I will tell you, the one that is often neglected the most is the one we're going to speak on this morning, and that is intercessory prayer. Praying for those who do not know the Lord. Here Paul is commissioning this church to pray specifically for the kings and all who are in high position. And he's going to tell us why in just a minute. 
But he's asking them to pray for Caesar Nero. He is asking them to submit themselves in prayer, intercede on behalf of Caesar Nero. Now that might not mean anything to you. That might just seem like a historical fact. But he is saying here, I'm asking you to pray for one who is greatly physically persecuting the church. One who is hunting us down. One who is throwing us to the lions. One who is burning us on a stake to illuminate his courtyard. I'm asking you to pray for this individual. Today, in our context, it would be praying for our president. If I saw as many people pray for our president as I do see criticize him, I wonder where our nation would be. We love to criticize here in the United States of America. We feel it's one of our constitutional rights. I have the right as an American to complain and to criticize. If I don't like it, they're going to hear about it. It is amazing how critical we have become as a culture and as a nation. How much, how much we have become complainers. My gosh, you need to find a job just so you can work in any complaint department there is. They're booming. But Paul is instructing us to pray for all people and in He begins with our leaders, and most commentators and scholars believe what he is doing here is saying, from the top down, all people, from the kings and high authority all the way down, all people, pray for them. I would encourage you, for a practical application of this text, is let us begin to pray for the President of the United States of America. We all have reason to criticize. There are decisions that are made today that are appalling to me. I'm not even going to say it in a politically correct way. It's breaking my heart. No, it's making me angry. Okay, I'm, re- I'm there. Okay? I can't believe we're debating the defunding of Planned Parenthood. I can't believe we're debating that. That should be off the table. We shouldn't be paying for that. It's ridiculous. Okay, I'm off my soapbox now. I had to get that out. But the deal is we need to be praying. We need to be praying. We can complain all we want. We can post all of our gripes on Facebook that we want. And I wonder how many people honestly feel that they are fulfilling their purpose as a Christian by making it known on Facebook that they object to something. If we were to just get off Facebook and get into our prayer closets and start to earnestly pray about these things, I wonder how much change would actually take place. Just something for you to consider. But if we go on farther, notice he wants us to pray for kings and all who are in high positions for a purpose. Verse 2. That we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. He is saying that it is going to be for the Christian's benefit that we pray for these people. They are Paul's hope is that in their prayer for these kings, for these authorities, that they will have the opportunity to live a peaceful and quiet life for the furtherance, as we will notice in the moment, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And we have seen the gospel go forward through times of peace and through times of persecution through the church. But Paul is making it clear here. Pray for those authorities that we may live. Notice how it's written here. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And in verse 3, he qualifies all of this and says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Don't you love that? It was very easy for individuals at that time, especially the Roman government, to consider Christians seditious. Christians spoke of the kingdom of God and the authority of Jesus Christ as king. This was a direct threat to Caesar. It was treasonous to speak in such a way. And Paul here says, pray for them. Pray that God may allow you to live peaceful and quiet lives full of dignity, and he goes on here to say, and godly in every way. Maybe you haven't contextualized your prayers for your leaders in such a way. I am convinced that Christians today don't understand the freedoms that they operate in each and every day and will not understand how precious those freedoms are until those freedoms are taken away. Then they will wake up and realize the blessedness of the freedoms that were provided to us. Paul here makes it clear. Pray for these people. That you may live quiet and peaceful lives. And godly. Full of dignity. Which is pleasing unto God. Did you ever contextualize it that way? Allowing us to use the freedoms we have not for the gratification of our flesh. Not to remain in a state of carnality. But for full on the glory of Jesus Christ. Allowing us to assemble in this place without any worry of retribution. A freedom that we enjoy. That many around the world no longer enjoy at all. If Paul can ask us to pray for Caesar Nero, why are we not praying for our president? As difficult it is, as it is to watch the policies that are being made, he is still not Caesar Nero. Is he? Let's be honest. If these Christians could be asked by Paul, this church could be asked by Paul to pray for these people then why can't we pray for our leaders? Now specifically, he targets that area, but he does proceed it with all people, right? Because it's pleasing to God to uh, pray for these individuals specifically that we may lead quiet and dignified, peaceful, godly lives, which is pleasing unto God, meaning it's God's will. Pleasing unto God is also a term that is used in the Greek and it's used in the Septuagint in the Old Testament to show that of a manner of offering. Do you ever consider your prayer life a manner of offering unto God? You should. 
Because it's really spoken about in that way, not for the means of obtaining and maintaining salvation, but it's an offering unto God, our prayer lives. So as the church is being commissioned to pray for its leaders, we are being commissioned to pray for our leaders and to be urgent and intentional about that, that we may be dignified and godly in every way. This is good, verse 3. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior because He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, the heart of God. I see Paul standing on a precipice here. For his entire life, he saw God confined to Judaism. He sees the oracles of God, the word of God, the covenants of God, all being kept to the Jewish people. And all the blessings that came from that, and the difficulties also when they were disobedient to that. Paul is now standing abroad and he's looking out over the world and he says, no, this isn't something that's meant to keep here to the people of Israel. It needs to go out to all the world. God desires all peoples to be saved. Will all people be saved? No. But that's his desire. And Paul made this part of his commission. I see this driving him to take the gospel into the Gentile world as Paul did, knowing that God desires to see all people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he wants the church to be missional in their prayer life, praying for people so that the gospel may go forward praying for the leaders that it is possible for the gospel to go forward. That's his mind. That's his heart set here. This is the aspect of prayer that gets us beyond the four walls of our church. And it is also the aspect of prayer that is often the most neglected in the person's personal prayer life. And it is him who is standing before us and saying, look, this is it. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And what is the truth that he desires people to come to? Verse 5. The truth is that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's the truth. There's one God and there's one way to God. And that is through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus said it very clearly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This was a reality that moved Paul. It was a truth that the world needed to hear. This is the gospel. And he knew that there was power in this message to open one's eyes and to open one's heart to the reality and to the light and to the glory of God. That's what the gospel does. And in the prayer life of the church, as we intercede on behalf of people who do not know the Lord, starting with kings to all peoples, we need to be missionary-minded in our prayer lives. 
I may never get to India, but I can pray for India. I may never get to China, but I can pray for China. I hope I get to Hawaii. (laughs) I can pray that I get to Hawaii. When we had a Bible study years ago, here in this area, here in Algonquin, it was in a home. As I was in the business community, I worked for a company in the tech uh, field. I, we sold computers and we staffed help desks and we set up networks and systems. I was director of operation. I had my own office, which gave me some freedom and some privilege. And during my lunch hour, underneath my desk blotter, I had a map, and I highlighted an area. And every day during my lunch, I would pray for that area, and that was this area before I became a pastor out here. I had a Bible study already, but I was praying for this area. Though I couldn't be there because of my work, I could be there in prayer, asking God to do a great thing, which I believe He is doing. That's, what a, that's the incredible privilege of prayer that we have. We're not bound by our location in our prayer life. We can pray for people because God's hand is never too short that He cannot reach. His ear is never too deaf that He cannot hear. His eyes are never too dull that He cannot see. And that's exactly what Paul is bringing to our attention here. He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, here is the truth, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for what? All. Notice the word all there used. Nobody is too far from God. Nobody is. We should never write anybody off This passage tells me that there is value in each and every person in the eyes of God. And though they are living apart from Him in a state of rebellion with the wrath of God weighing upon them, even unbeknownst to them, God would have me to pray for them and ask Him to open their eyes and open their hearts to the truth. It gives us a broader perspective. It's not just about our church and filling the seats of our church. This is about the kingdom of God. This is what Paul was standing and looking over the world in his mind's eye, possibly. This is it. The kingdom of God is going to go far beyond the reaches of Israel, according to God, into all the areas of the world. And I want Timothy, this church, to be praying for that purposes, starting from the king all the way down. I believe that intercessory prayer is difficult because it is selfless in nature rather than self-centered. It gets our eyes off of ourselves and onto someone else. I believe that this type of prayer is also very difficult because this is where we find the most resistance. But it was the heart of the apostles, as Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. If that's the heart of God, why isn't it the heart of our church community? If this is what God wants, and we'll start here in Algonquin, and we will go then to Crystal Lake, and Carpentersville, and Dundee, etc., and Woodstock, and go on from there. But if this is the heart of God, it should be the heart of our church. Again, it is up to God to save these people. It is not up to me. But God wants me to be praying. And I'm going to demonstrate and show you how we can pray for a non-believer at the end of this time together this morning. But I wanted you to notice in all of this the simplicity and the heart behind it all. Paul says here as he concludes in verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is what God's called me to do. Timothy, this is what I want you to be about. I want to call you to prayer. I want you to be praying for these people in supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. I want your mind's eye to be above and beyond that of the walls of the church. I want you to consider people. I want you, Timothy, and the church that you lead and pastor to be part of the great commission, the great mandate that Christ gave us all as the church. Go for, go for and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If we say as a believer in Jesus Christ that we love God, it then stands to reason that we are going to love the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates. Does that make sense? As God is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, I have to believe that our hearts are going to turn and reflect that of His and we're going to love those things that he loves and hates those things that he hates. And if we love what God loves, how can we get around the fact that he loves lost people? Listen to what Greg Laurie said. And if you love the Lord, you will love the lost people. Because God cares about the lost. God cares about those that don't know Christ. So we are not to look at them with disdain or hatred or anger. We are to look at them with compassion and concern, reminding ourselves it wasn't that long ago that we used to be among them. We were one of them, but God graciously reached out to us and brought us to himself. And we need to love those people and care about those people because God cares about those people. When I think of Paul who wrote this to Timothy, I thought to myself, is there a time that Paul displayed his heart towards the lost? And in that display, did he demonstrate how far he would be willing to go to reach those who were lost? And I immediately thought of Romans 9, 1 through 3. How far would Paul go to reach his countrymen, his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Listen to what he's saying here. 
I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and uneasy anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He wished that he would go to hell if his brothers, his kinsmen could be saved and come to the saving faith. This is how far Paul was willing to go. Was Paul exaggerating here or do you think this is something he was willing to do? I don't know, but when I read the life of Paul throughout the New Testament, it seemed like he's sincere here. All the things he was willing to suffer, all the things he was willing to go through to get the gospel out to the Gentiles, I believe that he would go this far for his brothers. That was his heart. I love the words he uses. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart towards my lost brothers, he says. But there's one who went even farther that I believe modeled for Paul how far he should go. I believe modeled for you and I how far we should go. And that's Christ himself. For he says, I have come not to condemn, but to save. I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. Our God was willing to step out of heaven to reach lost people. He was willing to subject himself to his own creation, allow himself to be tortured in the manner that he was, allowed himself to be crucified in the manner that he was to reach and to save lost people. He was willing to give it up all for lost people. So I ask you the question this morning. You say you care about those three people that you wrote about at the beginning. If you're not praying for them, I have a hard time believing that you actually care about them. I just got to be honest with you. Right to church, we should be honest, right? If we're not willing to pray for these people earnestly, can we honestly say that we are willing, willing, to care for them. How can I care if I don't pray? I want to leave you with this before we get into our time of looking at just a few things quickly to really drive this home. This is from C.H. Spurgeon. The soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer, he states. You cannot bring souls to God if you go not to God yourself. You must get your battle axe and your weapons of war from the armory of the sacred communications with Christ. If you are much alone with Jesus, you will catch his spirit. You will be fired with the flame that burned in his breast and consumed in his life. You will weep with tears that fell upon Jerusalem when he saw it perishing. And if you cannot speak so eloquently as he did, Yet there are about what you are to say somewhat of the same power which is in him thrilled the hearts and awoke the conscience of men. My dear hearers, especially you members of the church, I am always so anxious lest any of you should begin to lie upon your oars and take things easy in the matters of God's kingdom. There are some of you, he states, I bless, and I bless God at the remembrance of you, 
who are in season and in out of season, in earnest for winning souls, and you are truly wise. But I fear there are others whose hands are slack, who satisfied to let people burn. But do not themselves live for or preach the gospel. Who takes these seats and occupies these pews and hope the cause goes well, but that is all they do. I want to teach you now how to pray for your lost friends and family. If you turn with me in your Bibles, I'm going to quickly bring you to two passages that will set you on your way. The first is found in John's Gospel, chapter 16. And I'd like you to begin with me here in verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now that I am going to him who sent me, none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Here are your first three points of prayer for a non-believer. Pray that God would convict their hearts of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. This is how I pray for those I know who are not saved. Praying that God would open their eyes to the reality that they are a sinful individual and fallen before God and are in need of a Savior. And that Savior, number two, can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And number three, that the ruler of this world has been judged, meaning that Satan has been judged, and they now can be freed from the bondage in which they are under his authority. It's so important that you understand this. Because remember what Paul said in our text in Timothy. God ransomed them all. He paid a price for us all to bring us out of the slavery and the bondage that we were in. You praying this, you are praying along the work of the Holy Spirit. How can you go wrong, right? This is what the Holy Spirit has come to do, and you're praying that He would do it in the life of that unbeliever. You can't go wrong. Secondly, it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, verses 4 through 6. When we pray for the unbeliever, we have to understand where the unbeliever is. And I should say, let us begin in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. 
with ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, we discover that the unbelievers are blind to the truth. That blindness can only be overcome by God, who opens their eyes and opens their hearts. So if we're praying that God would convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, understanding that they are blind and need a spiritual awakening in their heart, this is all the work of God, but this is what you can pray for. And allow God to do that work. These are points of prayer that you can take right now to those three people that you have written on a piece of paper from the beginning of this message. We have demonstrated that God wants us to be a praying church. We have demonstrated how God would have us to pray. We've demonstrated who God would have us to pray for and why God would have us to pray in that manner. Now we conclude by showing you and demonstrating how we should pray. These are just some points. But it allows us to begin that process of praying for those that we care about who are non-believers, who are apart from Christ, who are subjected to the weight of the wrath of God and they may be oblivious to that fact. This is how you can begin to pray and it is to this that I call you to pray.